Hello, and welcome to another episode of Vet Club. This is going to be uh, an episode of the Journal Club. And um, so I'm pretty excited um, about, you know, continuing this. I feel like it's been going pretty well. And um, so, yeah, the plan today is... Very nice. (laughs) So that's what you guys have been on pins and needles for since the last week. Very excited about that. Um, Nice. We, uh, yeah. Can we thank Billie Eilish for that? Sure, yeah. All right. Do you Um, pay royalties? No, because we don't make any money off of the podcast. So as long as we're not monetizing this, apparently we're allowed to do that. So (laughs) yay. Anyway, I just think that it's like my favorite part of that song. <laughs> it just makes me think of, I was like, oh my God, we have to put that in the journal club. So that's what we missed out on last week um, when I couldn't figure out how the buttons work, but obviously I got that figured out. So um, very excited um, to uh, to continue with this. Um, like I said, I think it's going really well. Yep. Um, so welcoming back to the show is Dr. David Grant. Um, thank you for being here. And mm-hmm. then we have a newcomer. So Dr. Emily Gidcom uh, has not been on the podcast before, but she's going to be joining us um, in our journal club discussion today. So welcome. Emily. Thank you very much. Awesome. So, um, David, you took the lead uh, for this week in picking the articles. Um, Articles, articles. And and so I'm going to kind of turn it over to you and let you um, maybe talk about like why you picked these and and, and how we got from there and then we'll we'll get into it. Sure. Uh, So uh, my, my research and main clinical interest has been urinary medicine for almost all my career. Uh, so I, I picked this, um, this article from the ACVEC reading list, um, and that being this uh, review article of controversies in the management of feline urethral obstruction out of um, JVEC mm-hmm. uh, from 2015. Um, and so I picked it, one, because it does a pretty good job of summarizing uh, you know, is- issues that we're not clear on how to yeah. exactly manage. Um, and also because there's been a lot of good publications since, since this time point, yeah. which clarifies some of these issues. And so a great chance to sort of update, uh, this summary article. And, um, I just want to point out that I wore my Tom and Jerry shirt today because if ever there was a stressed cat, um, <laughs> it would be Tom. Ah, so. okay. I did notice the, the sweatshirt, um, but, uh, I didn't, I didn't realize how much thought you'd put into it. Indeed. So nice, yeah. nice. Yeah. I would say that's. I think um, I think actually Tom is getting his due. People are reviewing that and being like, Jerry was terrible. Absolutely. Like, Jerry was just terrible. Mm-hmm. But when I was a kid, I always, like, the way t- Tom is drawn and Jerry are drawn, like, Tom seems like the villain, but that is right. not the no. case in this relationship at all. Anyway, yeah. do you know do you know the cartoon, Emily? Yes. Okay. <laughs> you, you're kind of making a face like, what, this probably just because you didn't think this is what the journal club was going to be. Um, but it goes where it goes. So, okay. Emily is slightly younger than the rest of us in the room. Slightly. Uh, yeah. Not that much. <laughs> um, but she knows Tom and Jerry. Yep. But doesn't necessarily, uh, I don't know. Do you, di- do you disagree with the Tom and Jerry villain assignment? I mean, I think mice are always portrayed as nice things. Usually. Like yeah, that could be it. But yeah. I think in this case, but like even just, Tom always had like that angry scowl yep. in the cartoon and Jerry was always like, I'm the innocent one. But yeah, that was not, yeah, Jerry that was not was an instigator. for sure. What do we, I mean, we could open up like, was Tweety Bird an instigator? Like, oh, for I sure. Mean, Absolutely. Could open yeah. Whole was the whole aggressive. Warner Brothers yeah. yeah, catalog. Okay. All right. But not to get too far <laughs> yeah. off. So back to uh, urethral obstruction. Okay. Uh, so this article, uh, again, was a review of, of issues where there's not clarity in management of urethral obstruction. So maybe I'll just, sort of highlight the big yeah, areas yeah. that um, that this brings up. Mm-hmm. Um, so risk factors or predisposing factors, I won't bring up too much here because uh, studies are sort of uh, contradictory. Yeah. And um, in emergency medicine, we're dealing with the problem, not trying to prevent it. So yeah. predisposing factors are of less interest, I think. Um, the, the first um, area would be fluid therapy. Um, and mainly the author reviews um, fluid choice yeah. um, and the um, experimental study done with um, experimentally induced urethral obstruction and use of saline versus normal cell R and then a clinical study of cats um, with urethral obstruction where um, one group of cats got saline and the other group got lactate yeah. ringer solution. Mm-hmm. And in both of these studies, there was no... Um, Difference in survival, mm-hmm. um, no difference in length of stay, regardless of which of the 
two solutions, a balanced or unbalanced solution that the cats got. Um, the only, uh, no difference in dilutional effect on serum potassium. Uh, really the only differences being that correction of acid base abnormalities, meaning correction of acidosis, uh, was slower to occur with saline compared to the uh, alkaline containing um, fluids, LRS or yeah. Normasol R. Um, I think it's yeah. worth pointing out in, in this though, like those are tiny studies, yeah. right? Like compared to our journal clip from a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about thousands and thousands of human patients where they're finding small but significant differences mm -hmm. in outcome. Um, I think it's worth pointing out that like, Based on the studies that were done, we don't know. And yeah, there's no clinically relevant outcome. We're mm -hmm. like, okay, cats are definitely going to die if you use LRS or they're definitely going to die if you use um, saline. And, and I've always kind of said that, like, you know what, just save the animal, like, you know, do what you need to do. Yeah. But if we were able to do those types of, we might be able to tease out subtle differences and, sure. and whether it's actually the benefit of not having any potassium in your fluids is more beneficial or the benefit of having a balanced, um, you know, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, maybe that's helpful for the, for the kidneys, which we know have taken a hit in, in obstructed cats. So, mm -hmm. um, so I, I do think even though you're like, oh, there's no difference, it's worth looking yep. at other things to try to decide, do I think it's worth choosing one over the other? We don't have an answer though. And we yeah. may never have an answer because of those sizes. But yeah. anyhow, that was all. Mm -hmm. Just wanted to circle back to a couple weeks ago. <laughs> um, the um, uh, There was some uh, discussion about post-obstructive diuresis and what types of fluid rates... Um, these cats should be on with really lack of clarity. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't have any more recent articles to provide any further right. clarity on that. That's that always, issue. that frustrates me in everything I read, whether it's a book chapter yeah. or an article where it's like fluids, it's like you do this and it, and nobody can put a citation down and it's not because they haven't done their job. It's just, there isn't anything. There's yeah. so few studies. Um, although the one thing I get, um, this isn't anyone's fault. This isn't, well, somebody's at some point in history, I guess. But the term <laughs> shock dose yeah. of fluids, I if I could just delete that from yep. our collective vocabulary, I would. I, I just, I find that so frustrating because it implies there's a dose right. um, and it's not. It's you give as much as they need and you don't know how much that it is. So you start with a little bit. So everybody says, here's this dose. And we tell students to memorize this. And then we're like, but you're never going to use that. You're going to use some fraction of it. So like, why don't we just teach people strategies? Yeah. Um, but anyway, okay. End rant for now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, the next uh, area of controversy was over cystocentesis, mm -hmm. uh, really meaning decompressive cystocentesis. Mm -hmm. um, and they review um, some studies uh, looking for uh, abdominal effusion um, before or after decompressive cystocentesis um, and point out that there are studies showing that um, a significant percentage of cats actually have radiographically and or ultrasonographically mm -hmm. detected abdominal effusion prior to catheterization prior to, or decompressive yeah. cystocentesis um, and point out that there really aren't any good reports of cats having complications from decompressive cystocentesis. Um, yeah, yeah, that's one where it's just kind of like, meh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's how, you know, like if you really feel like you need to do that, okay. I, yeah. Like, I don't think we have evidence to say you should do a decompressive cysto, um, but I don't think we have any evidence to say that it's a bad thing or yeah. that it causes increased harm. Do you, do you ever do that? I do sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes. What's so, the sometimes? Yeah. What are the sometimes? The sometimes are when there's not time okay. to put in the urethral catheter. Okay. Uh, either because the cat is unstable and needs hemodynamic stabilization mm -hmm. uh, prior to catheterization. That's really uh, the main time. And then the okay. other would be if the urinary catheter can't be placed. That's the one um, that I would do yeah. it in where I feel like, is this somehow contributing? Like the back pressure is somehow making it harder for yeah. me to do this. That's the only time I've done it. I've not actually done it when I felt like they weren't state. Like I used... I'm still going to give them fluids. I'm still mm -hmm. going to, you know, treat the hyperkalemia um, and try to get them more stable. And if they're super unstable that like, I don't even feel like I can give them drugs to sedate right. them. It's usually because they don't need drugs and you can just unblock right. them. So I haven't actually used it in that situation. Mm -hmm. um, I guess in my mind, I'm like, is, is that few minutes going to make that big of it? Like, do you know what I mean? Where, yeah. um, but I don't know, but I've definitely done it where I'm trying to pass the urinary catheter. It's not going well. And I'm like, I don't know what else to do to get this sure. catheter in and I'll try it. Um, whether that makes a difference, I, I couldn't tell you because you, yeah. you keep trying until you get it and eventually you get one. Did the decompression have anything to do with it? I don't know. But what do you do, Emily? Um, I've done this 
Never. Never? You haven't yeah. unblocked a cat yet? I've unblocked a cat. Never oh. done the cysto. No, just, never done a yeah. decompressive cysto. Okay. Um, so, yeah. And and I wouldn't say you routinely need to do that. No. No. Um, the author and, does raise a good point yeah. in, a, in a very busy practice. There may be times when you can't get to yeah. the urethral catheter yeah. um, quickly. And so this does that buy you time. Yeah, no, that would make, you're just like, wow, there's nine things dying and this one has to wait a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, that that seems reasonable. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, they um, don't bring this up as a, as a controversy, um, but I'll, I'll bring it up as <laughs> as um, something that's interesting as um, they, they talk about bladder flushing um, yeah. when the catheter is placed. Um, and that's something that I have, have long taught students to do. Um, and I didn't, listed today because I already gave enough articles, but um, there's a nice recent article looking at bladder flushing and yeah. showing it's actually an extremely good article, extremely well designed, um, showing no difference in recurrence yeah. of obstruction or time in hospital um, for cats, whether they had flushing done or not. Okay. I thought I was yeah. like, there's one that I know of and I was, mm-hmm. I was just last year. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I wasn't sure which one you're talking about, but yeah, I can't remember the details of it, but that was what, that was the take home. I remember was that it didn't seem to make a difference, which yeah. is unfortunately a lot of what we come across when it comes to cats <laughs> with uh, urethral obstruction is we try all these things. And, and again, whether that is down yeah. to a numbers thing is that they're just underpowered maybe, yeah. but like how many, how many times do you have to do this to save, you know, one in a hundred cats because the right. survival rate's actually pretty high. Yeah. So that makes it tricky. Yeah. And in that, in that study, it was, um, uh, I, I, it was underpowered, yeah. um, that particular study. The other one I'll bring up was, was not, um, catheter type and yeah. size and duration. Um, some, there would be some yeah. evidence that perhaps, um, you know, a five French catheter may be causing some additional urethral inflammation, um, but um, not really any good evidence yeah, that it affects strong. outcome yeah. or duration of catheterization. Right. I think the main thing to take away about duration of catheterization is we don't know what the right, right. duration exactly is. Right. That's what I teach. Um, <laughs> and that you should probably do what I think most of us do, which is leave it in as long as you think they need it, which is <laughs> exactly. probably more for keeping it in for hemodynamic and yeah. renal stabilization yeah. rather than keeping it in in hopes of preventing some sort of recurrent obstruction. Yeah. I only have one rule about the length of time. Do you, do you know what my rule is, Emily? Have you heard me? Yes, I do. Oh, do you want to, what's, what's my rule? Um, when the cat takes it out themselves. Leave, leave it, it out. out. Yeah. Yeah. So like, that's the only rule that I have is if the cat manages to get the catheter out before you had planned to remove it, mm-hmm. I just leave it out and see what happens. Sure. Because if it's been three hours or 12 hours or, you know, 32 hours, let's just see what happens. And if it reblocks, you know, I'm going to warn the client like, Hey, he pulled it out way earlier than I had planned for. And so there's a high chance that he's going to, and I don't consider this a treatment failure if he does, but if he doesn't reblock, why am I going to put another irritating catheter in his yep. urethra? So that's the only rule that I have. Cause I've, I've worked with people like, Oh, the catheter came out. So we immediately replaced it. I'm like, wait, what if he was fine? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because we don't have the answer. Like, because we have no idea how long you need to leave the catheter. in. I'm like, well, let's see if in this cat, cause I suspect, it's going to be different in every cat. Like that's why I don't think we have a number is that some cats would be fine if you just unblocked them and let it go and just remove the catheter. Didn't even leave an indwelling catheter and, and others you need to leave. If you pull it, you know, at 12 hours, that's not going to work. But if you had left it in for 36 hours, maybe it would have. So that's the only rule I have. If they get it out, leave it out and see what happens. But yeah, yeah, that's it. So I'd be interested to know your, your guides for when to remove it on your own. And my, my rule is that their azotemia needs to be resolved and they need to be hemodynamically stable yeah. um, before I will take it out. I'd preferably like them to show some signs that they're feeling better, like maybe eat, yeah. but they at least need to be stable and um, their azotemia either gone or dramatically reduced before. I would I'm say in general, it. yeah, but world dictates sometimes we can't even play by those rules. Like if yeah. they run out of money, guess what? We're pulling oh, it. Of course. Um, yeah. So I actually, um, what I tend to do is I pull the audience and I'm like, all right, students, <laughs> interns, what do you guys want to do? Let's pick. And I'm like, all right, let's try that. Yep. <laughs> so, um, because you're, you're right. So the, the other thing would be is if they, and we'll, you're going to talk about this a little bit more, but if they develop a severe polyuria and during their recovery phase, I do try to leave the mm-hmm. urinary catheters in for a urine quantification. So kind of from that hemodynamic stability, sometimes I will leave it in longer, not because I think they need it for the unobstruction, but just to quantify urine output. But yeah. 
Yeah. I, it's kind of a free-for-all for me because mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm in a teaching institution. I let other people choose and see what happens. Yeah. Uh, what else? Yeah, that, but that's, yeah, nobody knows. That's the right answer. Um, use of antimicrobials. Um, uh, the evidence would say yeah. we shouldn't be doing yeah. it. Um, nope. UTIs are very uncommon in cats, especially cats with lower urinary tract signs. Yep. Um, the, um, the author states that most commonly antimicrobials are administered in hospital. Um, I guess they mean that compared to like if sending it home. Were, I guess, I hope yeah. they're not implying that most cats are treated with antibiotics. Hopefully they're not. Yeah. Um, well, they certainly, you know, he makes the point like you shouldn't be. Yeah. Um, and then um, the, the author recommends seemingly to, to obtain a urine culture at the time of catheter removal to look for catheter-induced urinary tract infection, mm-hmm. pointing out that catheter the cult catheter <laughs> culturing the catheter tip yeah. is not wise because we know that they are frequently contaminated yeah. um i don't know that it's a bad idea to culture the urine after catheter removal yeah. but um at the same time not all catheter induced bacteria yeah. becomes an infection with yeah. clinical signs so yeah. Um, I do not routinely do that, and I wait to see how yeah. they do. And if they're not improving or they relapse, yeah. then I will culture them. Yeah, point. I tend to I tend to go the same route. Um, I I go with the wait and see method for exactly what you said. Like, um, just because you get a positive culture doesn't mean they have a urinary tract infection. Mm-hmm. And so, and the other th- the, the the thing that for the flip side though is the signs of a lower urinary tract infection yep. <laughs> look a heck of a lot like a cat who's recovering from a urethral obstruction. And so it is challenging. Like yeah. how long do you wait, you know, before you decide? I'm, I know some hospitals have the protocol that when they, you know, at the time they pull the catheter, they just submit a culture and yep. see what happens. The question is, if the culture comes back positive, do you automatically prescribe antibiotics? Or do you say, right. oh, well, the cat's actually doing fine and having no signs. Like I might still hold off. So I think it'd be reasonable to submit the culture, but not necessarily to knee-jerk treat every cat that had a positive culture. I think you'd want to look at colony forming units. You'd want to, mm-hmm. you know, how is the cat doing clinically? And if the signs have resolved, then maybe you shouldn't, or maybe you reculture at that time or something. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think in general, anybody who's ever listened to this podcast has probably picked up that I, I think we overprescribe antibiotics and, and this would mm-hmm. be, I, I agree, no exception there. Yeah. There's no evidence. And so that was, I think, adequately presented. Yep. <laughs> um, the next uh, section, this relates to another article mm-hmm. that I brought up today um, is regarding re- re- <laughs> urethral relaxants or yeah. antispasmodics. Yeah. Um, and that comes up because as we all know, a large percentage of cats that have obstruction seemingly do not have any physical yeah. obstruction to urine flow. Yeah. Um, and so the presumption is that either they have inflammation that's mm-hmm. narrowing their urethral diameter or a stricture or blood clots, or that they are having urethral spasms that are actually obstructing them that we don't really have evidence for any of those right. um, as being the cause for idiopathic obstruction. Um, and so they um, talk a bit about different alpha-1 antagonists and mm-hmm. um, where they have their effect um, and not seemingly only in the proximal urethra of cats. And that's not surprising because that's where cats have smooth muscle um, with the majority of their urethra um, actually being skeletal muscle. Mm-hmm. And the benefits, perhaps, of sedatives on these cats, mm-hmm. um, um, not so much through relaxing smooth muscle, but perhaps relaxing the cat yeah. um, and reducing the anxiety and stress that is thought to be part of the neurohormonal disease that we believe idiopathic cystitis is. Yeah. So that's the theory behind using the, mm-hmm. the alpha antagonist. Yeah. Um, and then there's the science. Yeah, there's the science, <laughs> which we'll, we can get to later, or we can talk about that now. I guess, since well, that's he, he does talk about it in the article, but you also have, yeah, the other one. So however you want to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, why don't we, why don't we branch off? Because the, yeah. the, one of the other articles that I've chosen for today uh, has come out since this yeah. review in 2015. Yeah. Um, and it's from the Journal of Feline Medicine and Surgery, entitled Effective Prazosin on Feline Recurrent Urethral Obstruction. And I don't remember where 
this article came out of? It's a private, pra- well, I shouldn't, it, I, Lakeshore Veterinary Specialist yeah. in Wisconsin. So there you go. Private practice is at least one of the authors. Yeah. Um, and then I think maybe they collaborated with Iowa State is what it looks like. Okay. So. Um, so, yeah, so this was a prospective randomized placebo-controlled blinded study, Woo-hoo! which is what we want <laughs> and don't get very often. <laughs> Um, and they looked at um, recurrence of obstruction in male cats, um, both in the hospital and out to 30 days mm-hmm. um, following hospitalization. And they gave half the cats praesocin, and they gave half the cats a placebo that looked a lot like the praesocin yeah. capsule. Um, they were looking for, uh, a, obviously, a difference between those two groups, the praesocin or not praesocin groups, and did their power calculation based on a 36% rate of recurrent urethral obstruction, which is a pretty that's fair. pretty good number given yeah. all the studies of recurrence. Um, yeah. That seems like a reasonable number to start from. However, I, so, and I, I think they did a really great job in this mm-hmm. article. Um, and I love that they actually stated, like, at the beginning of the material, here was our power analysis. Yep. And here is, I don't think enough articles do that. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll say, like, oh, we were underpowered, or they'll do it in the discussion. But, yeah. like, this was upfront, like, this is what our study was designed to detect. And um, if you're not super familiar with power analyses, I think this is the part that people forget about, is that you have to sort of decide what you are trying to detect and what degree of a difference. Um, Everybody thinks like power analysis is this thing that happens Mm -mm. and you just have to figure it out. It's like, no, you have to make a choice. So they could have said, um, we want to see if there's a smaller decrease in, uh, you know, like, okay, well, maybe giving praesocin reduces the frequency of cats reobstructing from 36% to, you know, 15%. Mm -hmm. um, And they would have needed a lot more cats. Um, So even with this relatively large veterinary study, like that's a huge difference. Like praesocin would have to be amazing in order for this study to detect that. I mean, that's really what mm-hmm. we're, we're, at least that's how I interpret those numbers. Going from 36% of cats, a third of cats having a recurrence to almost none, like 4%, like one, mm-hmm. you know, ugh, one in every 25 is, is really different. That's a huge drop. Um, so I really love that they just put that out there. Yeah. This is what we're trying to detect. Um, I do too. And, and actually, I think the other study I chose today also has a power analysis or perhaps it's the... Um, Bladder, I think they bladder did. flushing study. I think it was, was the bladder mentioning. flushing study that did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, having said that, I, I've actually had, um, I've submitted manuscripts with power analyses mm-hmm. right up front mm-hmm. um, and then stated in the discussion that since we didn't meet those yeah. enrollment numbers, that indeed we have not achieved that statistical power and had reviewers to have me take the um, power analysis and sample size calculations out of the article because it will cause the reader to believe that the study is not useful, uh, which is incredibly frustrating. Right. Maybe we just teach people about power analyses first. (laughs) (laughs) That could be, that could also be a solution because that's the thing that you're, you're, you're doing that power analysis at the beginning and you're guessing that doesn't mean that's what you're going to find. They could have found an even greater, just, you know, maybe, maybe cats in the, um, you know, the control group had a 50% recurrence rate, in which case, you know, you wouldn't have any trouble finding a a drop that much. You just, you don't know what Mm -hmm. you're going to find. It's just that you have to kind of not guess, but you have to sort of predict what you think is a reasonable thing to find. And then what you also think is clinically relevant. I think that's the other thing. Like what would make this worth it in my mind? Mm -hmm. Um, If I had a decrease of this much, then I would say, I think it's justifiable to prescribe this medication. So that's what I want to try to find. Like, I, I think that's the thought process you should go through. Sure. Um, the, the problem is, um, as I'm sure you've experienced, when you do that and you're like, oh, I would like you find like, oh, 12,000 cats per Correct. group. Um, okay, well, let me recalculate yep. this. <laughs> um, and, and let's be honest, that's what we often do. We recalculate until we say, okay, can we find something that's in the realm of possibilities that is also still kind of meeting that, right. um, that you know, that, that clinical relevance threshold um but this is this is pretty reasonable and like you said knowing um in this case like a a reasonable estimate for what you'd expect the recurrence rate from other studies that have been published they had a good starting point for the recurrence rate for the control cats yeah um but we'll see later that doesn't always happen the way you think it's going to yeah (laughs) uh so they they excluded cats that had serious concurrent diseases Mm -hmm. um or had been on anti-inflammatories or other anti-spasmodics alpha-1 blockers 
um, or cats who are just too pissed off literally yep. to handle, <laughs> which is fair enough. I don't want them in my study either. <laughs> yeah. Um, they had a standardized protocol for sedating mm-hmm. and catheterizing the cats as you would hope that they would have. Um, and they gave them analgesia uh, with buprenorphine, which mm-hmm. is another issue I'd like to talk about at some point. Okay. I think that is perhaps a controversy in my mind. Um, and uh, then they were randomly assigned to either prazosin, which was half a milligram per cat every 12 hours, um, or as I said, the placebo. And they kept the catheter in somewhere between 24 hours and 48 hours yeah. in these cats. So there were a set parameters for when to remove it. Which makes, again, for this study makes it nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the cats were sent home on their medication for a seven-day course. So it, they started it in hospital. Yep. yep. And that was important. So they also, they said, I think they tried to start within eight hours of catheterization That's was their right. attempt and then seven days. So a lot of them were on it already in hospital and then continue it for seven days, however long that was yeah. after they left. Cool. Um, so owners didn't report any adverse effects of either the medication or the placebo. Mm-hmm. Um, the cats at the start of the study, they didn't find any significant um variation between the two groups as far as co-morbidities or um, sex or age differences, things like that. Um, They had 16 cats that experienced recurrent urethral obstruction, and the majority of those were actually in the placebo group. Uh, Uh, No, I think they were in the... Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, I meant in the praesocin group. So um, 30% in the praesocin group and 18% in the placebo group, uh, which is... Of course, interesting mm-hmm. um, and ironic. Yep. <laughs> um, uh, but there was no significant difference right. in that yeah. recurrence rate between the two groups. So it's a numerical difference, but not statistically yeah. significant difference. Because yeah. they also they also lost a lot of cats for various reasons they, after they, they were enrolled. Um, yeah. And for whatever reason, it seemed like there were more in the placebo group that ended up being excluded after the fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, I, it, it is. It's, it's clearly not uh, trending toward uh, praises <laughs> <Yeah>. working, but <laughs> yeah. I don't think you can say it was making things worse, like, you know, clearly. Sure. Um, but yeah, yeah, they lost a bunch of cats. Um, and then uh, last thing I'll say, and then I'd like to hear you guys discuss, um, is that they, they did a, a, what they call a posterior sample size calculation mm-hmm. or what's often called a post hoc power analysis um, and found that... Um, um, using the study's incidence rate of recurrent obstruction, which was actually 25% mm-hmm. combined the two groups rather yeah. than the 32% they predicted, they found that they would actually have needed 199 cats um, yeah. to find statistically significant differences between the two groups. And I'll just point out that post hoc power analyses are generally considered a big poo-poo, um, not to be done, but when you've already done your your done your power analysis and sample size calculation before the study, and you're just trying to show yeah. what the effect of losing yeah. patients um, for various reasons has on the study. And also so not having the incidence rate you were expecting. Correct. I think it makes helpful. complete sense. Yeah. I think it's yeah. appropriate to, again, I, I think like you're saying, the point is you shouldn't like do the study and then try to figure out what you're trying to, yeah. to sort out. They said, this was our plan. This is how it deviated. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think th- I think they did a really good job. I thought this was a, a really well designed study. Um, yeah, the only thing that would have made it better was having like thousands more cats. Yeah. <laughs> um, that I, okay. There, I I have one tiny little beef, sure. um, and I don't know how much of this is just like in order to enroll cats, but like they were like, um, we could we could give the cats antibiotics at the discretion of the attending veterinarian if like they thought that it was indicated, and I was like, err. That drives me nuts. <laughs> um, yes. Not that I think that had an impact on any of the, the results. I think that's unlikely that it did. Um, but I was just like, oh, man. Um, but I don't know. In their, in their um, you know, hospital, I can see you have to go to your doctors and be like, okay, in order to enroll cats, these are the rules. And some of them are like, I won't enroll cats if I can't do blah, blah, blah. And that maybe that was a, a sticking point for somebody. But um, but yeah, this was this was a really well um, well done, yeah. well designed study. Again, um, it's not big enough because they're never big enough, but it was a pretty darn good sized group. Um, but I think it drives home the point for me to how um, how many like you can you can do everything great and you still 
clients just didn't give the medication uh, or, <laughs> okay. you know, this or the cat wouldn't. And, and there might be good reasons for sure. it. Like it's hard to pill a cat. <laughs> I don't, I don't, there's no judgment there, but it's just like, oh man, you go through all the thing, hospitalize the cat, do all the things, then you send them home and then you have to exclude them because they just couldn't get the pill in the cat. And you're like, yeah. grr. Um, so do you but, all, have you all used Prazosin and would you continue to use it? All right, Emily, you first. I haven't. You haven't. Um, so, How about where you yeah. went to school? Did they use it? I not. I don't know. I'm not don't know. You don't remember. Um, I I've definitely seen a trend of less use of Prazosin over mm-hmm. the years because um, this is not the first study that has been disappointing on looking at this. This is the most recent and biggest and probably the best designed. Correct. But there are other studies that have been like meh. Um, there mm-hmm. was one study years ago where they there wasn't a true control group, but they compared Prazosin and phenoxybenzamine. Mm-hmm. And in that study, and that's what I remember learning in school, um, was like, hey, you should use Prazosin and not phenoxybenzamine, which you can't get anyway because it's massively expensive. But um, <laughs> but it was like, oh, you should use this because it's better than phenoxybenzamine. But they didn't prove that it was better than a placebo. Um, so for whatever that's worth. But I, I don't see people using Prazosin as much as they used to even like five, 10 years ago. I agree. Um, which I think is good. Uh, I, there are some people who still want, they really want it to work and they want to believe it. And I, I think because of issues of power um, and numbers, uh, I, I think that, you know, I can't say like there's no possible way that Prazosin does anything. There is a theoretical benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I counter is... Um, like if it doesn't work, why, why doesn't it work? Um, and one theory I have is that pilling cats is stressful and we think stress maybe Mm. precipitates some of these, these, you know, the idiopathic cystitis. That's a really tough thing to prove and to study anyway. But like, if you believe that, you know, being stressed is not a good thing, then you should never pill cats. Um, but, um, but I wonder how many, you know, how many cats that might benefit from Prazosin, but that is overshadowed by the downside of all the stress that just pilling them causes. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, so people that are like, I really, really want to use Prazosin or, you know, and again, I'm in a teaching hospital. I'm like, okay, there's, there's zero evidence supporting its use. If you have a cat that's incredibly easy to pill and they'll take it in a pill pocket and you want to try it. Okay. Um, you know, talk to the owners, make sure they know, like we ha- the evidence actually says that this isn't helpful, but in your cat, maybe he's already, you know, reobstructed a couple times. And if he does it again, he's going to get euthanized. And you're like, I got to try something. Um, and he can be pilled really easily. I'm, I'm not going to fight with you about it. But if you have to stress that cat out, um, or I tell people, send it home, but tell the owner, if you're fighting with him, stop, just discontinue it completely. Like it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. It's just not worth it. But um, yeah. I've, I've always had some concern about uh, about it inducing hypotension, especially yeah. in the early stages treating urethral sure. obstruction. Um, this study is nice that they checked mm-hmm. systolic blood pressure um, after administering praises. And I, I don't remember the exactly when after yeah. administering and that they checked it. But uh, looking looking at the, the medians and ranges, um, it doesn't look like they caused significant hypotension in yeah. any of these cats. So... Um, I don't want to say it's harmless, but at least it didn't cause harm Noticeable. Yeah. in that way. I think the, the other thing to to me that makes sense on why this would not make a, a big difference is that the majority of the urethra is not going to be Isn't affected be by prazosin. And mm-hmm. um, the urethra gets narrower towards, uh, you know, the external urethral orifice. And that area is probably also the area that gets most... Um, inflamed by the catheter or irritated by the catheter as mm-hmm. you pass it. So uh, I could easily envision that inflammation in the distal two yeah. thirds of the urethra is, um, more relevant, know, yeah. narrow, narrowing the diameter and more oh, yeah. relevant. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't really like pilling pets no, if there's not a good cats. reason for it. Like I just, any medication, I'm just like, you're going to have to convince me that it's worthwhile. There's some exceptions, like things that just make them more comfortable, like pain medications like that. No, I'm not, but I'm like, you're having to give them a medication that you think is maybe going to prevent this thing down the road. Like you got to convince me because that's extra money for the client. It's work for them. It's extra stress for them. It's clearly extra stress for the cat. Even, even like a really chill cat, that's extra stress for them. Um, and now there's a couple other things you could argue though. Like if you were in the, I'm pro praises inside, like they followed these cats out for 30 days but they only treated him for a week like maybe now 
in this study, most of the cats mm-hmm. that reblocked reblocked within the first, like before they were discharged. Yeah. I don't know if it was most, but a, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but maybe it didn't have time to have an effect. You, right. Like you can make all sorts of arguments, and maybe these cats need to be on praises for life. But I'm like, who's going to do that? Like I. <laughs> I don't want to do that. So yeah, I'm, I'm not in the praises in camp. Nope. Haven't been for a long time, but these, these types of studies are just like, okay, it's, yeah. re- it's getting really hard to justify using it. Yeah. That's kind of where I am. So I'm going to pick up on something you just said there, which is that, um, some treatments you don't worry about. You're just yeah. like, oh, okay. Yeah. And you mentioned pain yeah. pain control. Yeah. And so one thing that I have long wondered yeah. about is first of all, do opioids, cause any pain reduction when the pain is coming from the bladder. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, there's very good evidence um, in humans that even buprenorphine being a partial agonist um, causes urine retention. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe it's not so harmless when we're giving yeah. these cats opioids. Yeah. People, with, people with interstitial cystitis, which is a very painful bladder condition, are not given opiates. Yeah. Um, people with renal colic from passing ureteral stones, which is, as I'm told, one of the most painful things that yeah. can happen to you, are given NSAIDs. They're actually given diclofenac in preference over opioids, and opioids are uncommonly used. Yeah. Um, I, I have not typically given these cats uh, buprenorphine or any other opiate afterwards. Um, invariably, somebody else comes along and... Yeah makes me feel like I'm a horrible person <laughs> or not. Um, and, and I cave and. So what do you do? It. For, for pain control? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, in the initial phase, it's, um, I guess, I guess, well, this comes to the sedation protocol. I, d- I typically don't even use opioids in the sure. sedation protocol. Sure. Um, I have typically, this can be horrible to say, but not put them on an analgesic. Gotcha. Um, until I feel like I've got them stabilized oh, okay. and, and then yeah. I've used a non-steroidal. Gotcha. So the, the, I'm glad you brought this up because uh, I, around here, a lot of people use NSAIDs for the block cats and that makes me itchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm pro NSAIDs. Like they are, I think the best class of analgesics that we have as far as efficacy. And, and I think that they kind of get a bad rap in a lot of situations, but in these cats, my worry um, is that our ability to recognize renal injury is very insensitive, right? Mm-hmm. Like that we can do blood work and be like, oh, they're not azotemic, everything's fine. And it's like, no, you just mean that you haven't lost three quarters of your nephrons. Um, and so I do worry that like all cats that have, have been blocked for some degree of time have experienced some nephron loss, like some damage, M- maybe not permanent loss, but like nephron damage. And so in the back of my mind, I'm like, Ooh, um, I love, I love NSAIDs. I think they're wonderful. Um, I think they're effective. Um, and I think the anti-inflammatory part of it is, you mm-hmm. know, potentially beneficial. It has theoretical benefit there, but I just worry about you know, the kidneys taking an extra hit. Um, and so that's, and I don't know. And I I was talking with somebody the other day who had prescribed an NSAID for a cat who was like partially blocked and like couldn't be hospitalized. It was this whole thing. And I was like, here's some food for thought. Like, this is just my two cents. I can't tell you that was wrong. I'm not even going to tell you not to do it next time, but just this is what's in the back of my mind every time. Um, and then the other the other side of things is as we've talked about this before is you know like the stress for cats and things like that mm-hmm. and um, cats on buprenorphine like are often awesome <laughs> like they feel mm-hmm. good um, so whether or not it's directly analgesic uh, I I guess we don't know um, in that area um, but I do think they often in, in my pers- perception anecdotally like they feel better mm-hmm. um, and they're less stressed in the hospital um, I would say. And so there's those benefits. Now the urine retention is, is a fair point. Um, while they have a urinary catheter in, maybe we're not as worried about that, but afterwards we certainly should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably that needs to be investigated, but I'm yeah. actually like pro buprenorphine. Like I, I love buprenorphine in cats full stop, like you name it because mm-hmm. it's easy to give. Um, I think it's easier for clients to give, you know, transmucosal buprenorphine than mm-hmm. it is to give them, for in, in most cats, virtually any other oral medication. Now there's other formulations for that. Hopefully will be coming down the pipe soon for buprenorphine, but there's the long acting and then maybe transdermal, but, um, which makes it even easier, but we're still talking buprenorphine. Mm-hmm. So I think buprenorphine has historically been 
logistically easier for clients to give. Um, and that, that just makes things um, simpler versus other oral medications. But sure. the NSAID, I, I don't know. I don't think, and I don't think anybody's really explored it. No, not to my knowledge. Um, not to my knowledge either. What do you but, use, Em? Um, I think with pre-meds, definitely I would use, I think, buprenorphine, buprenorphine is something that we've used. Um, I haven't, I think I've sent home with buprenorphine as well. Yeah. Um, I think around here, I think I, I like buprenorphine. Um, I think some of our other ER doctors mm -hmm. like gabapentin. I definitely some that use NSAIDs. Um, I think we're kind of all over the map. Yeah. I, but my observation has been the majority. Buprenorphine. Buprenorphine. Yeah. Even I, before I got here, like that's not just me. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah oh, okay. Definitely. definitely. <laughs> I was like, I feel no, like, I, yeah, I didn't, I, I don't feel like I I've pushed that. I think this place is very buprenorphine happy yeah. when it comes to cats. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's a sarcastic view, but I feel like every cat that comes in the hospital gets buprenorphine. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it's a jerky cat. I'm like, man, maybe it'll be less of a jerk. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm, uh, a, I'm uh, pro buprenorphine. Another thing that, uh, I mean, just some, some actual observation that makes me can have some concern about mm -hmm. buprenorphine in those cats is, is that I see cats have their catheters taken out and then their bladders get big mm -hmm. and tight and painful when they get palpated mm -hmm. And so people decide that they need to have their catheter put mm. back in. And yet yeah. no one's seen the cat try to urinate. Yes. Right. So if the cat is obstructed because of inflammation and mm -hmm. urethral spasms, why isn't it trying to urinate? Yep. And maybe that's because it's opiate is mm -hmm. making its bladder flaccid and yeah. um, odd for a journal club. But as someone who has <laughs> to take opiates at times, I can tell you it, you don't realize how big your bladder is and there's really, really nothing you can do about it when wow. you decide to, to urinate That's um, if, if you've taken enough of it. So, sure. um, dose matters of course. Yeah. Now um, I'm actually, I'm not a fan of pulling the urinary catheter and then palpating the cat's bladder at all. I don't even recommend mm -hmm. that you do it. Like it, while they're in the hospital, like why, what are you looking for? Cause exactly like what you said, the cat will tell us if it has a problem. Right. Now, if you say if they haven't urinated in a certain amount of That's time, yeah, 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 yeah. But I know some people is like every, six hours palpate the cat's right. bladder and it's like we're trying to avoid stressing the cat like if it's if it's going in and out of the litter box then yes let's find out if it's got a big firm bladder um or if it's been like a long time then yep. yes um but just i i see people just say just get put it on the schedule like check the bladder every little bit i was like please don't do that um like that that just seems really really rude because I'm, I'm also on the same boat like if they're not trying to pee um so but that's a really good point um and i don't think we're thinking about that a lot that you know what effect is the opioid having on urine retention and and maybe that needs to to become you know part of the conversation that it hasn't been yeah yeah i've 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 had some sometimes surgeons come to me for consultation with post-operative patients mm -hmm. especially like tplo patients or or total hip patients and uh, about the fact that the animals the dog typically is not urinating yeah um and you know they're on fentanyl yeah. or they're getting morphine boluses and um, I've certainly had situations where I've recommended stopping those things sure. and then the animal starts urinating. So yeah. I, I do think it's a real thing and probably under-recognized yeah. in veterinary medicine. How important it is, I don't really know if sure. they're retaining urine for a few days because yeah. of analgesia. It's probably not the end of the world. Um, if it was you or I, it would probably be a little more disconcerting sure. to us individually. Yeah. That, I mean, I definitely think about the GI effects of opioids all the time and like, mm -hmm. oh, the dog's not eating and it's regurging. I'm like, stop the fentanyl. Yeah. Um, yep. so I'm doing that, but I, yeah. And maybe people aren't coming to me as much for the animals, not urinating. I, I haven't like just in my head, but maybe it's just cause I'm not thinking about it in the same way. So, uh, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll have to start kind of keeping that more in the forefront of my mind, protect particularly, or we need to just do another study. There's a lot more studies that need to be done. Yeah. The, the trouble, of course, yeah. is doing urodynamics on, oh, on cats is, is difficult. Um, uh, but, you know, that would probably be the way to find yeah. out. And then, but how do you correlate? You would have to do, probably do that in healthy cats. And then yeah. how do you correlate that to a cat whose bladder is inflamed? Yeah. May not be, may not translate it's very messy. well. It's messy. 
Yeah. It's hard. Well, and again, if you were, uh, if it's not, because obviously we've all had cats that are on buprenorphine and are peeing afterwards, right? Mm, like that they're not having yep. urine retention. So it's not going to be every cat. So it's not going to be frequent enough. You, again, you'd be looking at, you'd probably have to look at hundreds, if not thousands of cats to try to find that. Um, but I think it's, 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 it's worth mentioning that if you're having that problem and you have the cat on buprenorphine or any other opioid, that maybe that needs to, to come to the forefront of, of one of your differentials for what's the problem. Maybe it's not that the cat needs to have another catheter. Because I feel like that's the other thing is people go, oh, the catheter slipped in really easily. And you're like, so are we sure it was actually mm-hmm. reblocked? Um, so yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. Now, if uh, maybe you know this and maybe not, like if they have um, urine retention from an opioid, would that reverse relatively quickly with naloxone? I do, do not. I do not, not sure. know. Okay. Cause I was like, Oh my, cause maybe we, that might be, there might be literature for people on that too. Probably like if that is. would work. And then yeah. I wonder if you could be like, well, cause that's like the concern, right? Like yeah. if this cat's blocked, we want to sort it out now. Yeah. But if you could give naloxone, I don't know why and I then, haven't ever tried that. Okay. <laughs> that was why I was like, Oh, let's try some naloxone and then give it an hour. And if it pees in an hour, then you're like, cause naloxone works quickly. Yeah. Um, and then you're like, but I, I don't know. So now we have to do a little research to see if yeah. there's any, any evidence in people that giving naloxone can quickly reverse the urine mm-hmm. retention effects of opioids. And then, then we'd at least that maybe that's what we do is just at least anecdotally. And if you're like, oh, this cat's got a big bladder, it hasn't peed, but it's not trying to pee. You give it some naloxone to reverse its buprenorphine and then poof, you're like, all right, I'm convinced. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, all right, cool. We got plans. Yeah. Um, all right. The, you have a third article. We should probably, it, we can probably go through it quickly. Yeah, but. I can just do it quickly. Yeah. So essentially they took, ooh, what was it? I think 10 cats. Um, yep, 10 healthy yeah. uh, adult cats and they caused them to have urethral obstructions. So they I put know, a catheter in and they capped it off. Um, and it then, is, but you know, you got to do it sometimes. Yeah. And the, the title of this one, just to go back, is Acid Base and Biochemical Stabilization and Quality of Recovery in Male Cats with Urethral Obstruction and Anesthetized with Propofol or a Combination of Ketamine and Diazepam. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> that so one. the cats had to meet several criteria, which is they had to get really, really azotemic yeah. um, or acidotic yeah. before um, a urinary catheter was placed into these or cats. Like, or like they stu- they took the cap off, I guess, because they already had the urinary catheter in, right? Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So relieving the obstruction was just was done by easy. removing the, <laughs> the, the, the cap on the, on the catheter. Yeah. Um, and when they went to relieve the obstruction, meaning remove the catheter yeah. cap, um, they sedated the cats either with ketamine and diazepam or with propofol. And then they looked at the quality of the recovery, um, meaning how fast the cats woke up really is what they meant there, yeah. um, and how quickly the cats' um, acid-based status normalized, um, all following a standardized treatment protocol mm-hmm. with fluids and, and whatnot. And I really p- I picked this um, because... I was trained to use ketamine and diazepam mm-hmm. for sedating cats for relieving, relieving obstruction. And mm-hmm. then um, propofol had just come out around the time I was was in school and learning. And uh, I definitely have seen a trend over time towards mm. people using that and uh, many people being concerned about using ketamine causing excessive sedation because it's predominantly renally excreted. Um, and so... Um, yeah. I thought this article was interesting and essentially yeah. what they found was that, um, all the cats, uh, you know, their acid base status recovered approximately the same mm-hmm. rate, dis- regardless of the sedation. Um, but, um, the cats in the propofol group woke up much faster. Not surprising. It's got yeah. a much shorter half-life. Yep. Um, and, uh, pointed out that ketamine and diazepam might still be preferable just because um, it can be given intramuscularly, subcutaneously, um, rather than having to put an IV catheter into a cat to give propofol. Yeah. Um, which Although is, they probably should have an IV catheter. Right? Uh, <laughs> agreed. Agreed. <laughs> just, but but, getting, but, an yes, I, but yeah. I, getting an IV catheter. Yes. So what I've always pointed yeah. out to students, why do I continue to use ketamine and diazepam is because there are those cats that are obstructed and are not sick yep. and they're often pissed off. Yep. And so it's much easier for me to yeah. give it to them intramuscular or subcutaneously, have them knocked out, then get the IV catheter yeah. in um, and proceed from there. I've had some that were like not stable, but still trying to eat you. Like mm-hmm. you're like, your potassium is nine. What are you doing? Go to sleep. Yep. Um, no, I, I agree. I'm not, um, I'm not a big user of propofol in my block cats um, at all. And I guess the other thing is like, I'm not sure there's a huge advantage to having that cat wake up really fast. 
Um, I mean, I've never had a urinary obstruction, thankfully. Mm -hmm. Um, but like in this, I'm like, if, if I had, if I had all the things these cats had, I'd be like, you know what? Let me sleep for a few extra hours. Give me the extra dose of ketamine. Um, I'm a a huge, I probably a bigger fan of ketamine than I am even of buprenorphine. Um, I don't use the high, the same dose that they used in this study. So I use a lot lower dose of ketamine. (laughs) Um, because I feel like it's for like a block cat. I don't feel like they need it. Um, a higher dose of ketamine will last longer. Um, and it will knock them out maybe a little bit deeper. And they have, in my opinion, like a worse recovery, but like a, a one to two meg per kg of ketamine with midazolam, diazepam. And then again, I tend to use buprenorphine with that as well. Um, and I think they have a nice smooth recovery in, in most, uh, most, not every case, obviously. Um, there's other advantages to propofol. It's one drug. Yep. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to administer and you're comfortable with it, but, uh, I'm, I'm not actually aiming for the cat to be up and work, you yep. know, walking around in 15 minutes. In fact, you know what? Sleep it off for the next four or five hours. That would be perfect. Yeah. You've had a rough go of it. It'll be mm-hmm. okay. You know? So, um, I think yeah. it may also depend on on experience level of the person taking sure. care of the cat. So, um, you know, folks yeah. that are relatively unexperienced sometimes take quite a while to get a urinary catheter yeah. in. And I and I see them having to rebolus propofol yep. uh, versus with ketamine. well, even in this that study, have to happen so much. But they yeah. had to redose the propofol just for the bladder flushing. That's right. These cats. Yeah. So you um, know, you know, for an experienced practitioner, you know, they they need five minutes. Yeah. Um, of the cat holding still, so propofol yeah. is just fine. Yep. Um, but again, I, I agree. I'm I'm happy for them to just lay there for a while while I get the yeah drip or the everything else the sorted. collection set uh, you know hooked yeah. up and whatnot. But I mean, what this study showed was that you can use either. Yep. Like uh, that they are both um, appropriate. All right. In all the many, many, many cats you've unblocked, Emily, <laughs> what uh, what protocol have you used, or what what do you like to use? Um, I've definitely never done ketamine diazepam. I've definitely done propofol. Yeah. Um, I think it's just, I don't know. I didn't even think about the, I didn't even think about really the, um, the differences between doing that. I think it's just, I've always had a catheter in already. Um, so it's just been the easiest decision to make. Um, and then I like the chance of like redosing if I need to. And then I like that. I liked that they would wake up faster because as an inexperienced practitioner i like to make sure all my yeah, patients wake up that <laughs> makes sense no i get that where you're just like ah, i feel better now that you're up and awake yeah. and i haven't made things worse where where dave and i are like no 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 just sleep sleep for days everything's gonna be fine um yeah well and the other thing that uh there's probably not going to be any research because it wasn't around i think when this or wasn't yeah, probably not, is alfaxalone. I know everybody right. loves alfaxalone around here. Now, my beef with alfaxalone and propofol <laughs> is that they're not sedatives, right? Like propofol is an induction agent. And so I, if I'm going to use propofol, it's because I'm getting ready to anesthetize you and I'm going to have your endotracheal tube ready. And I just, I get really itchy using um, induction agents as quote unquote sedatives, because if you can intubate, it's anesthetized. Whether you do intubate doesn't matter. If they, if you could, then that's an anesthetized patient. And, and I think that's where we get into trouble, um, is we forget that like this patient's under anesthesia or maybe nearly so, and they'll go apneic with both propofol and alfaxalone and things like that. And I've, I've seen it happen in both. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, yeah. Um, but a lot of it is like, it's what you're comfortable with. Yep. Um, so you just, you know, gotta be smart, monitor them closely. Um, cool. All right. Final, final thoughts on all the urethral obstruction stuff. So what are our take home messages for today? It's really common and there's, it's ripe for doing research. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. There's so many more studies that need to be done. Yeah. What studies are you going to take on Emily? We're going to get you to sign a contract here before you leave for the day. You have five to 10 years. What are you going to, what do you get? You're like, I don't want to study this at all. I mean, for the idiopathic cystitis, I think like stress management, how would that That'd be affect cool. like reobstruction rates like That'd gabapentin really cool. at home? Yeah. And I mean, because you can give it liquid and so you're sure. not pilling a cat. It's a little bit easier, um, probably. Yeah, I think under, I was- I know some people who yeah. would collaborate with you on that study. I know some people have talked about gabapentin in the post-op or the post-obstruction period to try to see if that could reduce recurrence rates. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think uh, there's definitely people out there that are probably already doing it and for sure some people who would collaborate with you um, <laughs> to do that one, I have no doubt. Um, yeah, it's, oh, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up one other thing that had, um, I just- the language that we're using and we're talking about like idiopathic urethral obstruction. I've always lumped together 
like idiopathic cystitis, like that's for me the underlying disease process that leads to urethral obstruction in cats. Obviously, unless they have stones, then it's a different underlying mm-hmm. disease process or a tumor or something like that. But like in a lot of these papers, they refer to like a urethral plug as like being, now there's a known cause for the obstruction, but I'm like, that was still just related to idiopathic cystitis, right? Like, is that a different, or is that a different disease that I just don't understand? Yeah, I think, I don't <laughs> think that we know that there's a connection between urethral plugs and and idiopathic cystitis in cats. Um, so it's, it maybe isn't a cause and effect thing. Like it, they might get a plug and then have an inflamed bladder afterwards. Or do they start with the inflamed bladder and then that leads to the, pl- like, that's how so, I've always sh- understood it. Sure. I, it, logically, that seems like sure. that could be the case. Um, but whether cats that have urethral plugs have inflamed bladders and urethras, I don't think we know that. Mm. Um, and I, it's rare, but dogs too can get um, urethral plugs and um, much like cats typically have struvite crystals in them if if they do contain crystals um and dogs obviously we don't really consider them to get idiopathic cystitis so i, I think it may actually be a separate a separate process interesting and you bringing this up reminds me of one other thing that i was going to bring up which is that i don't know that in all situations where we think they've got idiopathic obstruction that they truly don't have stones and I say that because the distal urethral diameter of a male cat is about one millimeter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have definitely seen situations where male cats have had their urethral catheter removed. They reobstructed. The catheter got put back in, it got removed, they obstructed again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so finally then somebody, me, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, rechecked their bladder with ultrasound and, you know, has found little one millimeter stones, which sure. are not going to show up on any radiograph. Right. So I think if one is relying on radiographs to rule out stones um, or not doing very careful ultrasonography um, or only relying on ultrasonography done prior to placing the urinary catheter, I think there is the possibility that small stones, stones are being missed. Not, I'm not suggesting that's the majority of sure. the time, but I think in some cases sure. these idiopathic ones actually do have a physical obstruction due to a stone. Yeah. I mean, you always have to wonder about like just misdiagnoses and I've definitely had some where, um, it was treated as idiopathic cystitis. Nobody took radiographs and then you found radiographically evident, you know, urolithiasis too. So, I mean, that can certainly, certainly happen even when it's, you know, you can something large enough to see on radiographs. Um, I've, I've, and I've been victim to that myself where, you know, so we've all, we've all done that, but, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's really, yeah. I've always just kind of, I've not really put urethral plug as like a different disease process. Mm. Like I've just kind of always lumped it in with idiopathic cystitis. I um, mean, there's there, the other thing is because you mentioned dogs don't really get idiopathic cystitis. And yeah, as far as I know, I've, I've not really ever seen one. I mean, theoretically could one, sure. But like women get mm-hmm. idiopathic. I mean, sure. that's a, it's a well-described syndrome in women. Absolutely. Um, and there's a lot of corollaries there. Um, so not every woman that is experiencing lower urinary tract signs has a urinary tract infection. Obviously, they can get those too. But um, so so there are corollaries for the disease, um, whether it's the same in the pathogen. But mm-hmm. stress is thought to play a role in idiopathic cystitis in women as well. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just, I'd like reading through this. I was like urethral plugs. I was like, I was just like, sometimes you get like schmoo and, <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know what that is. Like I, I haven't analyzed it under the microscope and I was just like, oh cool. That seems better. They get a little, or people call it a mucus plug mm-hmm. and you know, yep. we, we give it all sorts of different names and you know, we don't usually analyze this particular, you know, bit of gunk and what's in it. But yeah, I've always just kind of lumped those together and it sounds like you're so, cause even when you remove that plug, like they still often have you know, hematuria and mm-hmm. evidence of irritation, but you're saying Absolutely. it might be secondary to the plug. Yeah. I don't, I don't think we know which yeah. comes first. Interesting. Yeah. Hadn't thought of it that way. All right. Any other take homes? Any other thoughts? We gotta, we gotta reconsider buprenorphine. Like, I'm not going to stop using it, going to be honest, but <laughs> I am going to, um, I am going to definitely be watching for those cats that people are like, oh, he hasn't peed, he hasn't peed and his bladder's big. And I'm like, okay. And maybe we'll try a dose of naloxone in one of those yeah. and see what happens. Um, 
I'm, I'm probably in most cases still going to avoid NSAIDs, even though I don't have any science to mm -hmm. say I should, because it just makes me nervous and I just want to save all the nephrons that I can. Um, and so if that can make a difference, but if you're out there like, and you're using NSAIDs, that's fine. You can continue until we have evidence to say, you know, differently. I don't think it's unreal, but it's just, you know, food for thought, mm -hmm. um, something to keep in the back of our minds. Um, you shouldn't be giving antibiotics routinely. Nope. Um, you better have good justification for that. We don't know how long to leave the catheter in. Um, flushing as much as you might enjoy it probably doesn't make a huge difference. Yep. Um, what we still fluid, have a what fluid you choose probably, yep, doesn't, probably doesn't make a big difference as far as we know. And uh, more research needs to be done on how much fluids to give and when and all of that. Um, but yeah, this was just a good discussion. Yeah. It's always good to talk about. It. It's a common, common problem. We see it a lot. Um, good news is that it can have a good outcome. Um, unless they do it multiple times, and the owners run out of money, which yes. is why we're so like obsessed with trying to prevent recurrence. Yep. Um, cause that is a real thing. And I've definitely had to euthanize cats that, but he just blocked two weeks ago and it was $2,000 and it's yep. going to be $2,000 again. And I can't do, yeah, I know. So I think that's why people get really sad about it. Cause even though they can Absolutely. have a really great outcome, people run out of money. They just can't do it. And that's fair. Um, so awesome. Thank you guys. Thank thanks you. so much for being here. And thanks for uh, taking lead on this one, David. I appreciate mm -hmm. it. Uh, thanks for joining us, Emily. Sure. And uh, yeah, I think, I think that's all we got. And we'll, uh, we'll catch you guys next time. I don't know if I should have played this or. <laughs> I was kind of hoping you were going to go with Billy. <laughs> next time. <laughs> <laughs>